Can godless and pashtas really coexist? Can one guard every single word but still have all the time in the world for anyone? Can one possess the strongest of opinions but still be accepting of all? Can one need nothing for himself but others' needs have no limits? Let's journey together and explore the life of Moran Hagoyen Rev. David Zatzal. Will we understand him? No. But exploring his life will definitely change ours. My father was born in uh, Luban, White Russia. It was under, under the Soviet Union at that time. They left Lubyan because of the communists. They were persecuted, really persecuted. He says, I'll tell you what Pachad is. In Lublin, the last Seder that we had there, my sister did not attend the Seder because they were told the day before if they go to the Seder, they're going to get beaten up the next day in school. He used to, uh, I assume, listen to my father learning out loud because we weren't allowed to teach. That was a death penalty. And he learned Tanakh Baal Peh. They would play a game. They would tell their shiva at the beginning of a Pasuk and uh, he would finish off the Pasuk. Any place in Tanakh. A cup gift or a cent for a Pasuk. Right, that's how he made money. So I asked him once if it was true. And he told me that my sister fired that substance years ago. Still owes him 10 rubles that she borrowed to buy a watch. Latvia was not part of the Soviet Union. The first stop was Riga, Latvia. My father once mentioned to me that that was the first time he ever went to a yeshiva where they were learning. For eight years, there was no mikvahs. That's why there's eight years difference between us. Even though the Roshiva made a mikveh, but it was a bit the ever they could make, they didn't want to use it. When we came to America, Yiddishkeit was a very low. Kids didn't go to yeshivas at that time. You couldn't make a panos if you went to yeshiva. Your first months in America was so difficult. Moshe did not have a position. And people were telling him, become a shaykhet, become this, become that. There was our beloved bag who had what's called the American Mir Yeshiva, you know, the style of the Mir. For older Bachram, at that time he was in Cleveland, and he hired my father to be the Rosh Yeshiva. So my father left the family in East New York and went there to see, you know, how things will work out. Unfortunately, within a short time, Lavenberg passed away. That was the end of the Yeshiva, really, it folded. And that became later who took over that building, I guess, whatever was taken over by Tells. Life was very, very difficult, but Rabbi Moshe had tremendous bitachen, as did his Rebetzin. And I'm sure that his emuna permeated the atmosphere in the home, and his children represent that pure bitachen and emuna that Rabbi Moshe exuded. We lived in East New York because that's where my uncle lived, who was instrumental in bringing us over. And I went to Teos Chaim. At the time, uh, the Novominsky Rebbe was also there. They didn't have food. My grandmother would bring food every day for lunch. Potatoes. He liked potatoes. She brought him potatoes every day, potato soup. The yeshiva to Rosh Hashanah took my grandfather as a Rosh Hashiva, and my father's been staying with him the whole time. My father was there 83 years. He was definitely the longest member of that yeshiva by far. That was his only Rebbe. He never went to another yeshiva. He never went to another place. He never left his father's daladams. We were learning. We were sitting here. The Rebbe was like over there. We got stuck there with the typhus or whatever. And Rabbi David would said, this is an example, Ta, 
Both of the Inami and the Taisus. The Rebbe did not pick up his pen. He didn't drop writing. He answered us. I used to drive when his mother was a Muncie. And he said to me, I don't know what the world wants from me. I was born in Italy. At five years old, I knew Jose de Nazikim. They brought me to America. I was 10 years old. They put me in Jewish Lama in the highest class in high school. And the Bachram didn't know as much as I knew. He used to help all the boys in the, in the math. He was learning yeshiva when they were in college. They were still coming to him to, to help out. You can see in the Chuvas Negris Meisha how often he quotes Bani, Haggai Reb David. In the Divris Meisha, probably even more so, slowly, slowly he acquired incredible Yediyah Satira, incredible Yediyah and Halacha, and didn't show it off. One of his main things was to be normal, a normal mensch. So he did the normal things that normal young boys did. He went to ball games. He was a ball player. Uh, he was a good one. There used to be that time in Shiva Leagues, especially in basketball. He was a good punch ball player. It was very of to him to be able to play handball at the end of the week. With whom? With little Talmudim who would beat him. It didn't bother him anyway. He liked the exercise. He was quite, quite good at it. I allow myself to judge him because I was better. There was a period of time that we took a, a summer trip and we went to California, Ben Azmanim. No one pictured that you're driving a car with somebody that's uh, walking around with Shasta. I mean, no one ever had such a home even here. Everyone knew about Rabdavid. We knew he lived on the Lower East Side. We knew about the soda machines he filled, the payphone where he answered Shilas, and the pizza shop where he ate. We knew all about him. But did we know who he was? Did the simplicity fool us? Did the relatability distract us? He didn't speak by the Rashivas itself, by his father's Levaya, he didn't speak. His brother spoke, but he didn't speak. But by the Shloshim, he spoke. He said, you should know I'm not my father. He said, perhaps someday there'll be someone like my father, but it's not me. But as he grew and grew, he became bigger and bigger. Like we find in Chazal, there's a concept of Godel mi Rabban Shmai. I think we find that either Rashiva Godel mi Gedalim Shmai. He was a tremendous Talmud I definitely considered his opinion before anybody else's, no matter who they were, because I knew who he was. As far as I know, he's the one that knows it all. I did notice as a child already how everyone else seemed to look up to him, and even if they were some of them that were older than him also. When I was a young bacher, just going into this medrash, the David Zatzal was a legend then. Shilas at that time that Ramesha directed to him when he was 35 years old. He loved learning, he enjoyed learning, and as I said, once to the Rebbets, and that's what he did best. Once he got into that Suya, Pasha Gemara, Ashutoisvas, he, he could not hear what was going around him. You could see him, Mamish, enjoying it. And it could be the 150 times, whatever amount of times he learned that Gemara. He just wanted to learn the Emes of the Gemara. He wouldn't even want to speak out his own Torah. One time he asked the Kasha, and he said, okay. And then he was going to go weiter. And we're like, well, Rosh Hashiva, I mean, what happened with that Rashi? He's like, look, you want a shot? I'll give you a shot. Okay, I'll give you a shot. And then he said a beautiful shot. He felt that maybe, I don't know, I mean, if this is my take, but maybe my Torah is not 100%. The Gemara and Rashi, that's 100% Emma's. The last couple, I don't know, a year or two or so, became very hard for him to travel 
So this young man was talking to the Rosh Hashiva, so he says, so now Rosh Hashiva, that you don't have to go, you have more time to learn. So Rosh Hashiva says, no, I have less time to battle. The Rosh Hashiva got on the plane and opened up a, a Tehillim. He only stopped for one minute to say Tefillah Sader as the plane lifted off, and he finished the entire Tehillim. On the way to Los Angeles, he also finished Tehillim, but when he finished Tehillim, he started learning. Everybody else went to sleep. He learned. He was by then close to 90 years old. I was once listening to him learn, and he was learning that I hear him learning, that I hear him reading a hadron, just very casually reading down a hadron of Menachos. He read through the hadron, and he closed his Gemara, took the next Gemara, and he just kept going. I was working on the Lower East Side, so I needed a place to learn. So Reb David came over to me and asked me if we want to learn. So I said, yes, of course, is Rebbe giving a shir? So he said, no, there's no shir, but we can learn. We learned through Nach, we got through Sise Sidra Mishnah, and Tenzin Mesechta's Gemara. We would make a seam together with the rabbits and my wife. If we're going through a Mishnah, I've definitely made sure to bring in different halachas, different shilas that came into it. One of his greatest joys also was a share. He loved to give the share. He felt an achrayas to the person in front of him. For example, if he had Talmidim, and the Talmidim were on a certain level, he taught his share on their level. He didn't make them feel that they don't know anything, or he didn't say, you know, bring me different kind of Talmidim. And when he learned, he learned in a very basic way. Gemara's which I would never know I would understand. He just made me understand it. It was unbelievable how easy he made it. He's learning the Gemara way, he want, and, and, and he's learning together with everybody else, like the Chavrusa. Rashiva used to give a shear in Mishnayis every day after davening. And during the time that I was here, went through the entire shas several times. Friday he gave a shechumah shear. That was also part of his regular 12th grade or first year base leverage. But then people became interested and they joined it and it became popular. It became a public shear. I would almost use the word ule saroscha shashuai, a certain playfulness in the most positive sense of the word. A certain excitement of, of, of seeing things like under the surface, between the lines, and kind of blending them together. Mr. Brewer, the same thing in the more, on Sundays. Became a public share. The way he took apart the Mishnah Brewer, the way he explained it, it wasn't just learning. You got to know what you're learning. Rabdavid never forget anything he read. There are times that my father would say, Rosh Hashiva, do you know that? He'll say, oh, I read it as a teenager somewhere. And he remembered it 50, 60 years later. He knew mathematics astronomy, you know, science, whatever, you know, a doctor once told him, you know more than me. He was a genius, you know. He could take two cans of peaches and tell you exactly how many peaches are in the can and how much is water. Reb David would always have tremendous insight into things of nature, names of streets, names of places. There were times when we were there Friday night, any time we would speak about a geographical place, he knew the longitude and the latitude. He knew dates in history, when a battle took place, when a king abdicated. He chose his words very carefully, but when he gave a person an explicit bracha, you could take it to the bank. People came with all the single girls, with, with sick children. The Rashid gave brachas like a rabbi. By Hanukkah, you'll be a color. There was once a lady who came up to us at a chuppah, and in tears she said she wanted a bracha for children. So David said, you have no children? Or you want more children? So she says, I, I have three miscarriages never. So David said, you paid your dues to Hashem. Hashem knows, now owes you three. For the next pregnancy, she had triplets. Some people said, who am I to give a bracha and this and that? And, uh, but the idea was, one would make me feel better. And if the bracha word is definitely good. Somebody never lost a child. 
And he came over to Bristol. She was sonic to ask him for a bracha for a child. And the Rashiva said, oh, there's the mile. So poke him for nine months. And nine months and eight days later, he made a bris. There was a young girl who came to him once, on Tainas Esther after Mincha, and she had a Taina. She came to Rabdavid, Hanukkah time for a bracha. Rabdavid gave a bracha to get married. She'll, have, she'll find a chassan. And then she was a little bit disrespectful that time. She goes, tell me by when. So David said, Purim, you have a simcha Purim, and you should have a chassan by then. So she wanted to talk to David, and with the time that she's not, it's not Purim, and no, no chassan. So David looks at his watch and says to her, but it's not Purim. So she says, laughing, she goes, Rebbe, it's 3.10 in the afternoon. Purim is an, an hour to when I live in Lakewood. If I get my car and drive back to Lakewood, it'll be Purim. She goes, so it's not Purim. What do you want from me? Why do you have a taina? She went back to Lakewood. Because she told the parents she would be coming to New York to meet with Dovich, she might be staying here for Fingil reading, so they didn't expect her home. So her brother came to the house with a bunch of his friends because it was afternoon stay again ready for Purim. She walked into the house unexpectedly. Her brother was there from Lakewood with a bunch of his friends, and she met one of the guys there. She might not have been engaged, but yes, she met the guy minutes before Purim. Once at a meeting of Rabbanim, and Dovich took an opinion, and some other Rav expressed that maybe the Rashiva didn't see the entire picture. So another Rav over there spoke up. He says, if the Rashiva said something, you question, he has Ruch HaKodesh, and if he said something, he has the entire picture. And then Shmuel Kamenetsky was at the same meeting. He says, what's the question? Of course, if a David says something, it's with Ruch HaKodesh. He kept so quiet that he could have Ruch HaKodesh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You couldn't be around a David not experience Ruch HaKodesh. When Rebelsky was sick the first time, and the doctors had a very bad prognosis. The feeling came to Rabdavid with the doctor to talk about end-of-life issues. Rabdavid sat patiently and gave them all the answers of what they should do. And then at the end, he says, but the truth is, I spoke to you because of covet for your father, but it's all not important. And they first thought, Rabdavid said not important means that it's over and it's not going to help. Ended up, by the time they got back to the hospital, they took a turn for the positive. And he ended up, we you know, three, four years more, he was in yeshiva giving shurim until later on he was nifter. My son had an incident in yeshiva, but I didn't know how to bring that up to Rabdavid. Right after we finished learning, Rabdavid says to me, you know, I want to tell you a story. And he tells me a story, and it's the exact same incident that I wanted to discuss with him. And he told me exactly what he did in this type of situation. It was as if... Rabbi David had this nevuah of what I was thinking of and what I wanted to say. There was a saying going around in the veld that if you come to MTJ and buy Kol Na'arim, it be school to have kids or whatever that year. And one guy came to spend Yantif here just to be able to buy Kol Na'arim and he was outbidded. And he went to Rabbi David really like, upset. So I said, don't worry, you, you don't need it. <laughs> it's a ghoul. Everyone says Kol Na'arim buy an MTJ with Rabbi David's brothels. But you don't need it. And a few days later, his wife went to the doctor and she found out she was pregnant. There's a story when he was traveling with Mace Larowitz, Sasal, and they went to Grand Canyon one summer. And they were thinking whether it's Mishraim, whatever bracha, you would have to say at that point whether you should say the bracha. And as they were discussing it, out of a clear sky, one big cloud came in the sky, and then a big strike of lightning. So that was able to say, because the lightning struck. Despite his greatness, or perhaps because of it, Rav David defined humility for our generation. To Rav David, he never viewed himself as greater or better than another. If he knew something, it was to be used to help another. There was no I, no self in Rav David's life. Yes, Rav David knew who he was, but it didn't matter. As close as we were, and our relationship spanned 30 years, it was almost impossible to get to know the man. 
because he was such a tsanua. He was so humble. I'll tell you a quote from my Something this came up. He says, I know exactly how great I am, but I know it's not me. The Labanisham gave me a bracha. And I imagine Labdavid would feel the same way. What gives me COVID? The way I try to act myself, and therefore I think people will give me respect because of that. So that's artificial. It's not something he would look for. You want to respect me because of who I am? Fine. Respect me for who I am. But that's it. Every unhug of his proves that he had no shaykhs with COVID. He probably didn't understand the Mishnah, what it means, what is COVID? Somebody once asked him, why didn't you speak by your father's Levaya? So he said, speaking of the Levaya is for COVID Ames. I'm not a speaker. It wouldn't have been COVID Ames. It's a simple answer. They were positive, brother, and we know that People sometimes, you know, say they want to hide. They want to hide, but they want to be recognized a drop, a tiny, uh, something. Recognize that I don't want to be recognized. Rosh Hashiva didn't want to be recognized at all. Ever. Because he didn't stand on ceremony, he was able to become closer to Tamidim than most of the yeshivas. And in the process, take a look what happens at a Tavajrayim dinner. People come out of the woodwork. Why? To show their respect for David. When I sat with him, he made you feel so normal that I would have to pinch myself that I'm sitting with the God Adar of the world. We would eat breakfast with him. He would get breakfast first, typically. He would be finished usually first because while we were eating, he wouldn't talk. We would talk. He would peek to see where we're up to. He never rushed us ever when we were eating. You know, he has to go back to yeshiva. I've learning. I have, don't you understand the whole world is waiting for me? Never. Never. Nothing was beneath him. Everyone knows. He used to take the coins out of the candy machine and restock it. And in those days, there were copying machines that were in his office. He wrote the coil checks himself. He gave out the coil checks himself. He used to uh, sell Esregen. I believe that money went to the coil. As everyone knows by now, he was busy with the soda machine. I believe that money also went to the coil. He was a nonof. And my job is to make sure we're making some money for the coil. And therefore, I'm going to fill it up. Who am I going to get? To, who am I going to get to get to fill it up? I have to get somebody. And if he doesn't want to fill it up, what's going to be to be empty? So it's easier for me to find. Instead of fighting with anybody, I'm going to fill up myself. My t- best title would be I'm the Apetrapus of the That's my best title. Supposedly, be responsible for everything you want. Even if uh, the faucet doesn't work, it's really my fault. She get somebody fix it. He had no ears about him. It didn't faze him to do that because he felt he was helping the kolel, but more so that the children in Tambidim should have a drink available. It was all with a with a with a plan. If you knew him, it's not a question. And if you didn't know him, I don't know how to explain the answer. <laughs> but he, he just did whatever had to be done. We're learning Marcus Davches. Still remember it like yesterday. The mission over there talks about that a father doesn't have to go to Golos by accident. He was trying to be mechanach for son, and he was a little too harsh, and the son didn't make it. And so what the Gemara seems to be saying, that the reason is that the father has a mitzvah to 
hit his son, even if his son is going on the right derech. The Rosh Shiva read it and he learned that he looked at us and he says, does it make sense? A father should be mechuyif to hit his son. And he says, no. My father has a discussion on this in the first chilek of Yeridea. Take a look. He has a whole way of learning the Gemara. And there was one excited individual who heard that the Igris Moshe talks about it. He ran out to get the Yeridea chilek Aleph, puts it in front of the Rosh Hashiva and says, here it is. And the Rosh Hashiva looks at me as if I don't know the Igris Moshe. I told you, I don't remember where it is. I don't know. I never saw it. I, maybe I saw it years ago. I, like, okay, so I took the Igris Moshe, I looked in the back of the Mafteach for Makas Davches, and there it is, and Simon Kofman, and lo and behold, the tshuva was written to B'ni Ahuvi, Reb David Feinstein. The Rosh Hashiva couldn't take the credit that I asked my father this Shiloh. Shabbos morning, I was asking him a few Shilohs, and at the end of one question, all of a sudden, he's, after he answers, he starts telling me a word. Why the Chazal Darshan that Chavayna is Elioh Navi? Right, Chavayna is listed as one of the seven sources of the Melech HaChishverish and Perakal for the Megillah. So why the Chazal assume that later on that it's Elioh Navi? Why is not the same Chavayna? He said to me, if you look, Chavayna in Perakal, if he's spelled with an Aleph. And later on, in Perakal, he's spelled with a Hey. With an Aleph is a Shem Chol. It's a Gaiyish name. So in Perik Aleph, it's spelled with a Shem Chol, and Perik Zayin spells it with a He as a Shem Chayish, as a Jewish name, so Chazal knew it was another person. Yeah, so that night was a Purim. I'm saying it by, during Megillah, and the guy says, this is a and I'm, mine is spelled with a He. And so it comes the end of Megillah, and I said, Zay, do you know what? You told me his word that you never tell me a word. And I see, and my Megillah tonight, my Megillah has a He, it was possible. And I would never have known it, not you told me this word. I was making, obviously, like a big rabbit deal, and he looks at me and says, one letter is not a psalm. By the Sea of Mashas, the Novominsky Rebbe, as a kind of Racha, called him on the phone. He wanted that he should be Messiah in the Shas. The Rosh Hashiva says, why me? So they said, what do you mean? It's a covet. He said, a covet? He says, what's covet? So they said, who should they give it to? So he says, give it to the biggest Rosh Hashiva. And he said, who's that? He said, the Shmuel Kamenetsky. I go in David, he gave up. He was supposed to mug the seum and he gave me the seum. So I want to thank him, Rabbi. Giving up a COVID is not an easy thing. Maybe he didn't practice it, but it is not easy. And I really appreciate Agoyan Abdovid for giving me the opportunity to make the seum. I want to specifically know that I'm taking his place. I'm speaking for her. Because that's what he wanted. I would like to take this opportunity to dedicate this chapter to my Rebbe Zetzal, who was like a real father to me. The name of this chapter, A Normal Gadol, says it all. Thank you, Rebbe, for taking so much of your precious time and learning with me every day. We, Baruch Hashem, made over 20 siyumim together. And after each siyum, Rebbe's simcha only increased. It just showed how normal Rebbe was for a gadol hadar to take his time and learn with a pashat person like me. I will really miss Rebbe forever. The Rebetzin, who is like a babi to me, should be gazun to 120 and only see nachas going forward. 
Hashem should give the strength to the Rosh Yeshiva, Reb Beryl Shlita, to continue to lead this special yeshiva. And thank you to Rabbi Edelman, Chani Yampolsky, Avrami Klein, David Rabinowitz, and Eugene Weiser, and the entire MTJ staff for all their hard work and dedication they put into this yeshiva. Rebbe is surely smiling down at us. Being great is not about doing great things, but the many small things that together culminate in greatness. Rip David wasn't great because of these stories. Rather, these stories demonstrate greatness because they're about Rip David. Rosh Hashiva didn't start hiding himself when he became 70. I think the Rosh Hashiva was hiding himself his whole life. He worked every day constantly to show everybody that he was normal. Being normal was the biggest thing that like he wanted to be normal, even though he was in Italy. His naturalness was so natural that it didn't even look like it was an act to try to be natural. But people related to that in a way, I think it gave people comfort seeing it and knowing that Reb David was approachable and he loved the people who he interacted with. You could be so great and so simplistic, sort of a contradiction. He walked around like a simple East Side Jew. David Zatzal was the exact duplicate of my trail's behaviors. He didn't look for himself, make a reputation of something that you can talk about him. On the contrary, he seemed to be involved in making sure you see nothing that attracts your attention. He sat down at the table in the pizza shop. No one made special room for him. You sat down like everybody else sat down. I would be shopping in one of the local stores, and I would turn the corner, and there's the Rosh Hashiva examining cans of beans. That's not usual. I did the same thing. The chiyav is, as my father holds, that, you know, there's, there's dinim, what a woman has to do in a family, what a man has to do. The wife stays home. It's your job to supply it. So the husband has to go shopping. That's your chiv. And that's what we learned. Though Rav Moshe holds this to be so for a regular husband, this doesn't apply to someone who's the Rav of a city. He was a Rav. It was different than a Rav. He was not even allowed to walk in the street alone. He couldn't chop his own wood. He was a person that did, his, did the wood. He even once tried to chop his own wood because he was a young man. The other man was an old man. The other guy said, I'll take it to the tailor because you're taking away my, my job of covering that tailor. The winter time, uh, every Shabbos, he would do a lot of the things that has to be done in the house because my mother wasn't around to do this. We used to set the table on Friday, whatever he can do for the rabbit, and he used to do. He would go start preparing the salad, start preparing the chicken soup and the blech in the kitchen. After Shabbos, Rosh Shivan went in and the tablecloth, the the other end of the tablecloth, spreading out the tablecloth, and he's helping her with the tablecloth. The dessert was always the highlight. We would go to the freezer, bring the ice containers to his seat, he would have his scooper, and he'd go around the table to each grandchild, guess what flavors do you want? He wanted a lot of vanilla, maybe extra vanilla. He enjoyed going shopping, that was his outlet. He enjoyed going to a place like Amazing Savings, that was his outlet. He liked herring oh, very much, and he liked the uh, Kugel and Beyond. So one time, I just walked outside to see if he was coming, and he was coming with his entourage, right? Coming down East Broadway, and he got to the steps of Beyond, and he looked up at me, and I said, I have a piece of herring with your name on it. I can't believe I'm even telling this. Like, And he looked, and he said, okay. And he came upstairs, and everyone came in, and we ate, we sang. Next to Simcha Satayra, family was the biggest Simcha. He would always hold the door open for the Rebetzin, 
and wait for her to get in, close the door, and then he would get into the car. He would never just get into the car and just sit in the car and wait. He was a very warm father. He was a very warm father. My oldest son, Bell, who's now the Rosh Hashiva, as a youngster, he wasn't a Masmid. So the Rosh Hashiva signed him up for an art course, that he should have, a, have an outlet. It took a, a year or two, he settled down, and he became a Masmid. But it wasn't a tug of war, learn now, learn now. He was very emotionally attached to all his children and grandchildren. Whoever came in, he was always so happy to see them. Anytime he would see us, it was always a hug and a kiss. He'd come out in the midst of family simcha. And, you know, even if he was going to Yechassan, he came to the Ofra. He always liked to commemorate every birthday, bring over presents for everybody. Herbal control car, football. And you guys would get older, he started giving like a sitter, a set of svarim. Birthday child got to the better gift, I guess, got to pick the gift, but everyone got a gift on everyone's birthday, so no one should be left out. He would never bring people into the house to have clown meetings. It was always in the yeshiva, or I'll meet you at a wedding. He wanted his home to be a place for the family. He never really talked about himself or what he did. When he just became more public, he'd be in the, on the phone for an hour, I'd ask him what, he'd say nothing. So my answer would be, you're not on the phone with nothing, you don't talk so much. If you want, tell me it's none of my business. I could accept that, don't tell me nothing. And that's how it remained. As much as possible, he kept it out of the house, met people in yeshiva, and for that I was very grateful. He didn't just live a normal life, he strove to live a normal life. He kept his home normal, a place for family. Diktuk in halacha was harmonized with normality because his entire focus was solely on the Ratz and Hashem. He didn't show anything that was different. In fact, the Rashiva told me himself that he could never do anything that was more than the Ikra Din, Kimat. Why? Because then it would become like everyone has to do that. And the Rashiva told me many times that people would ask his fathers, what does the Rosh Hashiva do in a given circumstance? And the Rashiva told me, they shouldn't be asking my father what the Rosh Hashiva did. They should be asking what they should do. This is the halacha, this is what you do. Finish, nothing more. Nothing more and nothing less. He didn't make sure I knew his chumrah. That, that's also something that, you know, when you have a chumrah, I'm going to make sure you know that I'm doing the chumrah so I can brag over you. He said, just like we see in the Taisas brings that from the Sifri, that the, 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 there was no Kedusha on the Kivus Yochid outside of Eretz Yisrael until after they were Kivus Eretz Yisrael. He said, once there was Kedusha Eretz Yisrael, so then they were able to extend it. So he said, same things in life. Avada is such an union of a Chumrah, but until one has Dalach Chalkeshukhan Aruch, a lot of those Chumras don't have any Kedusha to them. We sometimes get caught up with what we think is important, but Reb David lived with the Shulchan Aruch. I'll give you a story I once heard. He was traveling, he was collecting for French jewelry, and he went up to Toronto. And they went for lunch to someone's house, who some people felt maybe shouldn't eat in the house, be machmir, and Reb David was eating, and some other people weren't eating. So one of the Tamidim went over to Reb David and said, how are you allowed to eat here? And he said, what do you mean? Shulchan Aruch says, they're from people, you're allowed to eat. That night, they went to someone's house for dinner, who we would consider most from this person. Of course, you're allowed to eat here. And everyone's looking. Reb David's not eating, and other people are eating. So they went over to Reb David afterwards and said, Rashiva, why didn't you eat? He says, because the halacha says when you're traveling and you don't have your minion kavua for Mayriv, you're not allowed to eat before Mayriv, so I'm not eating. 
How many people think that way? It's not that I do things because it has to be a why. If you can't give me a why, then there's no because. Usually, you need the ones that can answer a why, or people are telling me the chachamim. Most of them are not telling me the chachamim. They just make it what they think is the proper dress or an if you wish, of a Talmud Chacham. He didn't wear a kapata, didn't wear a hamburg, and he wore a simple suit. The Pasuk says, The David Macharker Bechol Ois, Lefmei Hashem. David was dancing with all his strength, Lefmei Hashem. The David Chagur Eifod Bot, a linen tunic. So Rab David, in his safe round of tires, writes, A linen tunic. David did not dress in his royal garb. He dressed like a simple servant performing the will of his master. It explains his lavosh. David had only one thing. What does Hashem want me to do right now? And if he felt that the right thing for this moment is to go to the pizza shop alone or with someone else for whatever cheshbon, then nothing else mattered. What does Hashem want me to do? He was identical during Nila and, and Rosh Hashanah and any day. Every single day was the same exact formula. Giving your kid a candy to passing the biggest child in Aloha, it was all that same drive of just, I'm doing what Hashem wants me to do. <laughs> The Hashiva Zatzal was one of the biggest influences in my life. I had the schus to accompany the Rosh Hashiva as he traveled the country on behalf of Claudius Soil. And I had the schus to see how he receives every eat with such a love, like he has all the time in the world. It was just a glimpse at what it means to live a life of chesed. In truth, Rav David really instructed us how to produce this film. In an interview about his father, Rav David remarked, The world will gain nothing by knowing how many times my father finished Shas, or that he was fluent in all of Torah. When people speak of my father, they speak of his compassion, how he had time for children, for broken-hearted individuals. The bigger a person is, the more chesed he must do. And that's how we know who the true Talmidei Chachamim are. If you would observe him during the Hamshech of a Seder Hayyim, chesed, chesed the whole day. He wasn't mechuyiv to run the yeshiva. He wasn't mechuyiv to run the kailo. He wasn't mechuyiv to do a lot of the harbotzes tire that he did. It was chesed, chesed, chasodim. If someone asked him something, he took care of it right away, on the spot. I remember there was a, a girl that came in for a bracha for a shidduch. Some random person he never met before. He said, you know, take her information. Maybe we'll think of somebody for her. People would come to him. They had no funds to marry off the children. He would raise funds. People who were sick, I would contact the doctors on his behalf to make sure that people have direct access 
to these world-famous doctors. Some of them were random. Some of them, they didn't know. The running around for the Chenechetzmai, the French, who they told about, he was over 85 years old when they started that, going yearly to Lakewood to collect for Michal's yeshiva. And he himself would be calling me every few weeks and say, Gedalia, do you know anyone going to Eretz Yisrael? You could take an envelope of Stucker checks. He had many people in the yeshiva would have taken care of it, but he wanted to take care of it himself. He once gave out a loan from the Kailul money to somebody who trusted, did it a couple of times, and everything was fine. This last time, the person couldn't pay it back. So Reb David told me, I took a tutoring job in the evening, and I used to tutor until I paid it back. I remember when we were tra traveling around for the French Children Fund, Toshiva pulls out a check from his own account for $1,000. So Toshiva, you know, we are going to all the Gevirim, the Toshiva, he says, I'm Potter from giving, I want to be part of it too. There's a story going around. I heard one of the speakers saying that he was went out, out of the yeshiva in the morning in the pizza shop and someone came in once asking for money and Rashiva shockingly and uncharacteristically got up and said no one should give him any money. But we found out later on the man was on drugs and every time they gave him money he would go to drugs. So you would think the story stops there that Rashiva cared for this guy's health and would tell but then no one knows the next part of the story. That whenever Rashiva would see this man he would invite him into the pizza shop or to a local restaurant and buy him a meal. I was sitting with Rav David one time in the office and the Rabbitson called. They were collecting clothing and uh, the Rabbitson said, I know Rashiva has shirts and maybe we can give away some of the shirts. Rav David said, I have a bunch of brand new shirts that's still in the packaging. Give those shirts away. I have plenty of the, of the old shirts. The old shirts are good for me. Well, there's once a boy in the Yeshiva here that bought shoes for Pesach and he walked out of the shoe, uh, shoe store and he saw an Ani there and he noticed Ani had like shoes that was shredded and ripped and nothing there so he thought about it for a while and he goes okay he gave his took over his old shoes gave it to the Ani and then he put on his new shoes even though he didn't want to keep it for Yontif and he told him David I gave my shoes to an Ani so David gave him Chizuk that was very nice of what he did and, but again no one knows the next part of the story that from then on, every year of Pesach would David go find the Ani and buy him a new pair of shoes for Yantif. When somebody came with a shvera matzah or so, and when I walked out of the office, I know he took a till and he went to the corner and he said to him. They say that sometimes davening over those little papers in his pocket and his wallet at the end of Shmon Esrei took longer than the Shmon Esrei. The Rashiva never stopped thinking about the people and he never stopped caring about the people. People who didn't call, get back to him, he would sometimes be davening for a very, very long time. We had a few parlor meetings in my home where Rav David attended. And somebody came over to Rav David and said to him, uh, I like Ambracha, my name is so-and-so. He says, I know your name. And he told him his name. I told him, how do you know my name? He says, because didn't you come to me a few years ago to daven for you? Whatever happened, I'm still davening for you. You could trust a secret with him better than you can trust the gold in Fort Knox. He knew people's tsars. He knew their secrets. He knew their embarrassments. He never said a word. He never shared anything about anybody in any way, so that you could never figure out what it was about. My father was speaking with Abdavid one Arab Shabbos, and Abdavid put him on hold and said, I'll be right back. And my father waited on hold. It was about five, six minutes, and Abdavid comes back and continues the conversation, doesn't say anything. The next day, by the Shabbos Suda, my sister and brother-in-law were by my father. And they mentioned in passing, oh, we called Rib David yesterday, we had a big Shaila. And my father says, you called Rib David, what time was that? And they figured out that's who Rib David put my father on hold for. But he didn't say anything to my father. 
And after Shabbos, my father called him. It was schmoozing. And he says, Roshiva, you know, my daughter was here. Dvorah was here for Shabbos. She mentioned she was the one who called you for that child. You put me on hold. And he still didn't say anything. His friendship with people lasted he used to say it, if you have an occurrence at Tov, if someone did you a favor, that favor is not for that second. For the rest of your life, you have an occurrence at Tov for that person. When he saw someone else being successful, he was so happy. I remember once passing to the Yiddish business and the Rashiva saw customers inside. He's like, ah, I yid mach business. He was so happy for the other person. There was one boy davening for the Amit, and we had a career problem during Chazar's shots. This gentleman in the base medrash was correcting him one after the other then the boy did a big one he said the wrong chasima on one of the brachas so this yid calls out and he yells it out the kid just continues and he's getting flustered the third time the shiva which is very unlike him lifted up his hand leave the kid alone the kid just continues after davening, a person comes to their shiv. Mishnah Brura. Mishnah Brura. Shnei Mishnah Brura. Stoffin. It's Marka B'Dievet. Shoulder shiv. Shiva says, And what's with Malbin Chavayor Barabim? A personal humor that the Rashiva had was that after Pesach, he was very careful about eating chametz, even though that was sold. The biggest time this is a problem is if Isrichag is Arab Shabbos. I knew this Chumrah and I, and I was very careful to go to a strictly non-Jewish place and get flour and yeast and everything was 100% as he liked it. So a different neighbor of ours had met the Rosh Hashiva. He says, oh, if all is baking challahs, according to all of the Chumras, how many challahs do you want? And at the time there was a bakery here that was owned by a woman named Rivka and she was closed the whole Pesach. So the Rosh Hashiva said, Rivka hasn't had a Parnassah in over a week. I should deny her a Parnassah another day. And whatever was his chumras and haga, it was out the window. He didn't care. Somebody needed a parnasa, and, and that was it. The Rashiva wrote, and every single day he wrote his aris on Dafa Yaimi and on what he learned and on the shia that he gave. One day I was walking with him in the summer, and I said, Rebbe, I would love to have your, some of your notes if you would lend them to me. So two days later, he hands me a composition notebook. Here you have on the second and third parak. And these were the words he said. And don't worry if you lose it. When I think about Reb David, I just want to smile. There was a love. There was a love. Without talking at all, everybody felt so embraced by just being able to be next to him. He would walk in just to the bakery. To the, I think it was Rifka on East Broadway. Just that smile he would give to her gachabas. She used to tell me that made her shop, just seeing Rebbe walk into the bakery. I didn't even think Rebbe needed the challah from there, because people would bring him challah. He just went in there just to give her a gachab smile. One day, I davened Mincha for the Yomit. At the end of Shmon Esrei, instead of waiting for him, I said, Tachnin. I didn't wait for him. I said, Kaddish. And then I said, Elenu. And I said, Kaddish. And then I realized, I said, Brunfeld, what'd you do? You didn't wait for him. I went over to him. I went out to Rav David and I said to Rav David, I apologize, it's not Derek Harris, it wasn't proper and whatever it is. He says, let me tell you something, you'll come back tomorrow and you'll do it right. He wasn't worried about himself, he was worried that I felt bad. My father was Nifta on Rosh Chodesh. Rav David gave us a psaac that only the family members should be masked, short to spay them, but no one else. 30 days later, by the Shloishim, everyone knows that Rabdavid was not someone who spoke in public. 
but I had to ask him. And he enthusiastically said, yes. It was a shocking moment. Not only did he speak, but he spoke, I believe, for more than 15 minutes. And I really believe that a lot of the reason why he spoke, besides for showing the friendship, was to give me the encouragement and say, Gedalia, you could do it. Dalia just made Mayer bigger than his 73 years war. He's continuing to live through Dalia that will continue his legacy. One of the most remarkable things I've ever seen is when Rabbi David spoke at the Shloshim of his father. Rabbi David was speaking about the fact that his father, Rabbi Moshe, had the great schus to marry Abbas Kayin, the daughter of a Kayin. And my friends remarked to me, that's what you praise Rabbi Moshe about, that he married Abbas Kayin? And I turned to them and I said, you don't understand. Rabbi David's mother was sitting there. Everyone's talking about Rabbi Moshe being a Tamil Chacham, and no one's talking about her. So he made sure to talk about something that would make her feel good. On Shabbos mornings, people would wait for him on the street, and they would want to talk to him, ask him shyness. Kids would want to give him Shalom Aleichem, always with a smile. They felt honored, they felt comfortable, and he was Mechabedem, and gave an encouraging word, and gave a chizuk. We all have idiosyncrasies that rub you the wrong way and not to flinch for a second when it comes to chesed for somebody else and to help another yid. That's a tremendous evanashem. Rabbi Blutzatzal told me years ago MTJ had much, much more eccentric people, especially after the war. The one person that was able to talk to everyone was Rabbi David Feinstein. A lot of people who are very big feel responsible, you know, to be nice, responsible to be accommodating. But deep down you're saying, why am I wasting my time? What does this person want from me? Why does he bother me? But instead of being brusque and abrupt, so you get your frustrations inside and you leave them inside and you appear to be very friendly and nice. Maybe that's a madrega, but that was not Reb David. Because Reb David believed if Hashem put this person in front of him at that moment, then that's the person that he has to attend to. Almost as if nothing else really exists. you got to be there for him. If he picked, chose you to be the Rebbe, then you're stuck with him. I say Rav, it's up to the, the student, it's not up to the Rebbe. And they found a mokim by him, and he was machshu of everybody. If the Rebbe gave me more kachas, he gave you less kachas. It's not my doing. It's Rebbein blessed me. If he didn't bless you, it's not your fault. He respected every person because he was a mensch. My sister was once there, and someone totally unbound, someone really not well came knocking on the door. So, like, very calmly, they brought him in. My grandfather went to get him. I asked him if he were Kiddush. He went to bring him Becher. He made Kiddush for him. I think he went to get him a yarmulke first. And he sat him down, he gave him Kiddush, they served him a Suda. Rabdavid was one of the busiest people in the world. And everyone knows it was hard to get through to him. But once you had an appointment, it could be a five-minute appointment, you felt you were the only person in his life that he cared about at that moment. He used to sit with people on Sunday, he sat with a lady for over five hours after Mincha. Couldn't believe it. He used to give people time. They used to tell him, eh, it's short. It used to be long. There must be hundreds and hundreds of people who considered Reb David their best friend. Everyone thinks they were the closest person. Just a few days ago, someone was telling me how close he was to the Rashiva Zatzal. He got Kabbalah from the Rashiva Kabbalah for Shkita, the Rashiva Zatzal. And he was very, 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 very close to the Rashiva Zatzal. And I would say that maybe he spoke to him once every five years. But he felt close. You could see him sit and talk to a person. The 
person was just talking and talking and talking and talking. But that was the chesed that this person needed. So he sat and, and he listened to him. People tell me I do chesed to them. I look at them like, I don't know what they're talking about, but, but whatever it is. But if that's the way they feel, that's obviously I came, the way I came across to them. And even though, even though, like I said, I don't believe I do a tenth or, or 5% of what my father's Zetzal used to do in chesed. And yet people appreciate it. I used to spend some time Shabbos by the rabbit, by the Shabbat rabbit inn. After my father was left there, the rabbit inn told me that he expects me every week. He was like a second father to me, and she was like a second mother to me. He would finish the meal, and Eugene would sit on one side, and I would sit on the other, and he would uh, go through the something of the Parsha and, and read the Haftorah. And we would stay late into the evening. Even the person that comes and he screams at you and he doesn't, he, he's all upset at you, still, she was a kind of Rachel would sit and he would listen to him, he would listen to him. He said, I'll explain to you, you know what they say the Rachel Bamecha means? It says, you see another Yid. Everybody is so happy when they meet another Yid, they're so happy. Ah, Nachayid. He said, you start asking him questions. So where do you daven? Which street do you live on? Where do you send your kids to school? It all goes downhill from there. Suddenly you start categorizing what the person's about and you're not keeping him in that high esteem that you had from when you met him. And so therefore, the Rosh Hashiva said, that's also And he said, if you see a Talmud Chacham that seems to be acting a little cold, don't judge him because maybe he's just learning pshat this way. There was only one Talmud Chacham that we know that acted that way. People wanted a picture of Ashiva. He must have stood in for hundreds of pictures. It's the same smile with all the children. Because he loved Kali, so he loved Yid. And if you can make a favor to Yid by making pictures, so be it. Neighbors come in on Purim with a child and he would stand taking his voice hands and almost give a dance on Purim in the dining room. He would throw in a joke. He would make the child feel special. My children came excited. They were going to ask Rav David a question and he sat and he listened. He said, that's a great question. And he answered them and he showed them inside the Chumash exactly where his answer was. They walked out and they felt so good. They felt so special. A few years ago, I promised my class if they would do a certain thing, which is not easy for them to accomplish, I would take them on a special trip. He did it. So I arranged to bring them to the Lower East Side to Rab David. And he came out of Shear and he greeted the boys and he said, Welcome to the Lower East Side. This is where it all began. I said to myself, Here is a world class Gadol Big Israel greeting these boys, Lahavda, like a tour guide. But he, that's the way he was so passionate and so plain that that was the way he greeted them. And they appreciate it. <laughs> well, she was biased, no? <laughs> from the smallest child to Gedoli Hadar, from a nearby Mispalel asking if Tachnon should be recited, to a Rav seeking halachic guidelines that would impact Klal Yisrael. Reb David fielded Shilas from around the world and across the entire spectrum of Torah. No question was too small and no question 
was too great. Where did we see his greatness? In his Pesach. We could call up the Rashi Yeshiva on any She'elah. He made himself accessible for many, many, many years. Day or night, he was accessible. Any emergency we had, any She'elot of Pikuach Nefesh, Rav David was there to answer. There were two phone lines, and they were ringing constantly. And it didn't matter the time of day. Crazy situations, but they need an answer to them. It's an emergency. South America, Mexico, Europe, Earth, Israel. Later on, Chabal Yashiv used to send him everything, anything that came up in America, Chabal Yashiv sent him. It's not just that he was capable of passing the Shilas, but he was able to, without even putting it on people, demand such respect that everybody listened to him. Once you said, Reb David told us, the conversation ended. People ask me about the one-blade shaver. I say, oh, Reb David said it's fine. That's it. I'm not to discuss the why and the where and the how. And just like he was, his psukim too seemed simple on the surface. However, they were anything but simple. Someone who's in a sugya and spoke to him could see the depth in everything he said. Someone who was not in a sugi, Yeshiva Bachar, who brought his list to Shilas and asked, he would be so nonchalant that you couldn't always see the depth of what he was talking about. It's shocking sometimes when he asked the Shiloh that the person who asked had access to a lot of information, couldn't sort it out, and David was a, like a radar to find the point that sometimes the whole entire Shoel missed completely. I remember coming with a, with a, with a complex shayla about the incidence of illness in a family as it impacted Shaduchim, with multiple layers of the shayla, different generations, different sides of the family, and so on. And I remember after beginning the description, Roshiva gently cut me off and said, I just need to know the answer to this question. What's in this branch exactly that? And based on that was the psak. After having reflected back on the shayla, I realized that, you know, all the rest was just confusion. When you're paskin in every corner of Yiddishkeit, and you're passing instantaneously, what does that really require in terms of what you know? And the answer is a massive amount of Torah knowledge. The Rosh Hashiva would give a psak, seemingly without even thinking, just it's mutter. So afterwards I would say, what about the Taz? What about the Rosh Hashiva would say, no, but we go like the Shach, we go with the other opinion, we other the psak and the halacha was already worked out in every psak that he was giving. If you had but this, but that, he would answer you. A family came to Reb David with a shayla. The Roshiva responded, there is no raya from Shas and Paiskim to your shayla. Don't bother going to anyone in America. You must go to Reb Liashev. You have to go to the Godel Hadar. And there's a chiv on the Godel Hadar to say a psak, and that's Gavaya the psak. Such brirus of Shas and Paiskim. Many G'dayla Terah geniuses and the answer comes out in a way that takes time to process the answer and somehow with the Rashiva the answer came out so quickly but yet presented in a way that the Rashiva made it immediately understandable and accessible and you were left with no ambiguity. When he knew the answer he gave it right away. When he needed to think he thought it was only about answering truthfully and accurately. It was just like Okay, there, yeah, that Gemara, that Gemara. Like, very easy. You could ask him, Shiloh's on Pikuach Nefesh, and he answered, like, if you asked him, what bracha do you say on potato chips? I remember once during the uh, effort to straighten out a, a Hetiska with Quicken Loans, it was a very complicated issue that had to do with Kavua Kamechza Amechza, one of the most difficult issues in Yeridea. 
he mentioned, well, maybe this and this is a problem. Then he looked up almost as if uh, just to take 60 seconds and uh, put some, think something through, and then he said, no, it's fine. Once I asked him for a Shiloh, he says to me, I can't give you an answer right now. So I said to him, what do you mean you can't give me an answer? You can give me an answer right now. So he says to me, sometimes I have to think about it. I'll give you an answer tomorrow morning. But he never quoted chapter and verse or ever made you feel he's so far beyond you in his current and his ability to relate to particular simon or seif. He didn't think of that he was someone special. He just thought that I'm able to answer something, you know, so I'll do, I'll do that for you, but not that I'm anything better than you. That's the way I understood. That's the biggest chesed someone will do with you is by passing the shayla for you because he's the one that's undertaking the Gehenim for himself. Which he removes it from you and he takes it on. Why? Because you say, hey, the rabbi told me. So I'm, I'm, I'm caught up to mine, so it's the rabbi's fault. When he mentioned chuvas of his father, he said, there is a chuva by my father. You know, Ke'ilu, he vaguely remembers that there's such a chuva. when I no doubt that he knew the chuvas inside out. His greatness in Psach is because he didn't forget anything and therefore often disagreed with his father. He found the other sources that pleased him better. What I saw between the two, Rosh Hashiva would often say, David, you're right, but my Messiah is like this. The Gemara sometimes is stuck, and they don't have a teretz. The Gemara says, Rav Tanahu Polig. Maybe Rabbi Vadoidi was a Tanan, he was Polig. He was able to do that. Some of these Pesachim were just amazing, they were unique. Some of them were just peleplaim. There's nothing else to say. I was fascinated by the fact that the Shiva was comfortable in areas that everyone was so uncomfortable in. Medical shilas, end of life shilas, the, the yuchsin. In the last years of his life, he passed in Pekort and Fresh Shilas, I would guess every day, because he was the address here in America. Rav David once told me, Go to the hospital and pull the plug on that little girl. She's halachically dead. And if you're halachically dead, you're mechuyif to give her a kfur as Yisrael. Go pull the plug. Who has such shoulders to give such psach? Rav David had special expertise when it came to technical things, whether machinery, technology. He said, I remember I was once at home, and Rav Moshe and Rav Hankin came in with a technician. And they took off the bottom of the refrigerator. The, ref the refrigerator in those days was an ammonia refrigerator, which had a fire. And Rav Moshe and Rav Hankin were opening and closing the door of the refrigerator, of the freezer, and watching whether the fire visibly grew or didn't grow, whether there was a change in it. And Rav Moshe and Rav Hankin held that since the change was not visible, was not noticeable, it didn't count. It didn't count in the eyes of halacha. Rav David used that to explain that when someone does something and what he's doing is recorded on a computer chip, but there's nothing visible. Doing that on Shabbos and causing it to happen uh, is mutter. I once asked him, the doctors talk to you, how do you understand the Tishprach? He says, one day you pick up a medical encyclopedia and you, you read through it and you know everything what they're talking about. I took a picture of the top shelf in his house. I saw three big medical books. And he said, aha, that's where he gets it from. I remember when the one blade shaver came out, and I asked him uh, if it would be mutter, according to Ramesh's hetter of shavers. So he picked one up from his drawer. He said, you mean this? He had already uh, taken it apart and uh, tested it. The Rashiva had a, a, an amazing sort of shulchanoruch, if we could use that term, of knowing how much credibility to give to doctors. 
exactly how to measure and balance what they say together with the idea that ultimately Rafur is kol kule biyad Hashem. I remember coming to bring him the husband of a woman who unfortunately was, you know, was a chaylam asukhanis at the time, and um, the question was very complex and involved, you know, involved a, a certain nutrition system that she would have to take and certain side effects and certain risks. And the doctor had laid out, you know, in detail the two different side effects of the two different treatments. And I just remember the Rashiva sweet smile. He said, that's a doctor's speculation. You'll do it and it'll be fine. And he wasn't giving a bracha. So the Rashiva, that was reality. Because the clarity of Amunah says, then, then that's not a factor. And Shulchan Aruch says we have to take. And so there's a Rabbein Shalom. And then why should, why, where's, the, where, where's the risk? Though Rabbi David never imposed his views on others, when needed and appropriate, he stood by the Amos. And since it was never about him, all that mattered was the halacha what it said in Shulchan Aruch. David had no qualms about people disagreeing with him. His lack of negis in general, but certainly when it came to Psak, was, I'm going to tell you what I think it says in Shulchan Aruch, what I think the Ratzon Hashem is, and that's it. Someone called, they were, they were, it was with a shutras with a guy. So naturally there was Shailas and Shabbos and Yontif. How to do it. So he told him how he should do it, and this was all on the telephone. And the person didn't like the answer. And he said, but this, that, that. Someone said this. She said, if you want my psak, I'm telling you my psak. If you're not happy with my psak, you could go to someone else. There'll be more makele for you. This is my psak. I came after the winter back one summer, and somebody cut four inches off the glass of the mechitza on the bottom. So I said, what is this? He said, well, we had a lot of people here, Yamim Noroyim. Some of the ladies were complaining. I got very upset. I said, you just can't do this. I was very upset. After the weekend, I took pictures and I went to Rav David and I showed him what they did. And he said to me, the mechitz is still kasha. Pick your battles. I told him, but when you, if you look at the mechitz, you could see the ladies through those four inches. He says to me, no, they can't. If their seats are in front of the mechitz, going that way. So I said, Rav David, but the Rabbanim that are sitting on top, and we always have a lot of Rabbanim every Shabbos in the seventh time, the Rabbanim that's sitting on top, they could see. He said, tell the Rabbanim to control themselves. <laughs> uh, he was very clear to the point and as straight as an arrow. One Sunday morning, there was someone pursuing him about something, an issue. And at some point, he turned to this person and said, in a voice that was louder than I had ever heard him, he said, you want me to change my mind, and I'm not going to change my mind. The answer is no. One, he signed something, one letter, and there was someone who was very opposed to it. And he, <laughs> and he wrote a letter to Yeshiva, don't, don't, don't send us any more letters. I don't want to give to you because of this and that. He said, okay, what can I do? You know, I'm not going to give him to his pressure because he knew when not to get involved also, not when, not when not to answer also when, if he suspected something political. Even though we felt that we should do things, we should argue, we should just, that's the way it is, let it be. Shiva understood the world and understood politics and everything else. At the same time, never lost sight of what he held the Amos was. And when he felt it needed to be said, he would say it fearlessly. When he felt that if he doesn't assert himself, some could be adversely affected. It's what they call in English, step up and assert himself in a humble, quiet, unassuming way. But he always carried the day. I guess the most recent block of, uh, of Shilas and things that he dealt with obviously was about COVID. You know, a lot of very similar Shilas came in. And one of the very big themes 
was about Parsham Natsibur. Because a lot of people felt, well, they're wrong, they don't really know, I know better, I don't have to listen to whatever the Tzibur is doing. And he definitely, definitely felt that no matter how right you think you are, if your community, if the Rabbanim your community are doing something, you had no right to, to step away from that. Ramesha had the custom of putting on tefillin in the style of the Beis Yasef, not the Arizal, in that he, he wrapped the tefillin around his arm, not seven times, but just once, and fastened it, then put on the Shalraish, and then would tie the Shalyan in the style of, of the Arizal. Uh, somebody wrote a letter to Reb David saying, my father doesn't do it, but I want to do it like Reb Aisha. So Dava wrote him such anivos. He says, my father was a Galadar and he had reasons for doing things. You should do things like everybody does it. He said, when I became Bar Mitzvah, my father taught me how to put on tefillin like everybody else. And that's how I do it. And you should do that too. Something that he told me many, many years ago is that when he passes a shayla, he passes it for you, not for anybody else. Many times I would ask the Rosh Hashiva, how come the Rosh Hashiva said the same point to someone else and said, you could do that. And the other person, the Rashiva said, no. So Rashiva said, no, he was asking for Bidyevit if it was already done. And this person was asking, L'chachila, should I do it? One person was a Yerushamayim who was, who should be Machmer, a Bal Nefesh. Another person is not a Bal Nefesh. He just wants to know the maker of Din. There's so many facets to Psach. I bought a company and I uh, found out that there's Chil Shabbos there. It was on a Wednesday. I came to Adobe, I said, I bought this company. I brought it along. The guy I bought it with from, he was going to be a shooter. So Adobe says to him, Nachman, you're selling the company by Shabbos. You're getting out. For him, I'm giving a head to Shabbos. So this fire guy says, why, he's a better Jew than me? So Adobe answered him right back to his face. He says, you're involved in it already. I have to find your head to Shabbos. He's not involved yet. It's not Shabbos yet. He's getting out. His favorite line was, who are you fooling, right? Many times there were situations that, that yeah, you could come up with a, a kula and say, well, we don't know this and we don't know that, we don't know that. But she would say, listen, again, who are you fooling? At the end of the day, so they're going to get married based on the fact that we don't know who, who all these different people were. And then tomorrow you're going to find out exactly who they are. So the person's a mamza, and then what, and then what you do to that? So that was a big chalik of, of how we looked at Yichsen also. One day after Mencha, two people came over. One was an Israeli, he, and the, I think of both of them, but one had a store and a, you know, appliance store and he, in, over here in the neighborhood. So he sold them a television to be brought to, to Israel, but there they had a different city, and he didn't realize the wrong, time, wrong type and this and that, and he wanted his money back and this and that thing. The two people were discussing this, and he just made a comment here and here and there. He didn't really say what, and between them they made a settlement themselves. So he told me this is the best thing. Encourage them to make their own se settlement. A woman who was very deathly ill. Unfortunately, she, she wasn't Tahira at the time, and there's a question of whether or not her husband could hold her hand to be able to soothe, you know, to soothe her distress. And Rodovid smiled so sweetly, and he said, that's just the greatest Erechibo. There isn't a way we can be mad to that. But he said, wouldn't we want to be mad to that? But we can't. And, and when I conveyed that feeling to the to the two people in question, it allowed them to feel so much better about the sack, so much more able to accept it. We may never know Reb David. We may never fully understand his greatness. We may never even understand his simplicity. But we have so much to learn from him, and that's what he would want us to do. When you add it all up, it's a mystery.
It's a mystery wrapped up in a riddle, as they say. It's a mysterious mitzias. He was very quiet until he had to say something. That was his uh, nature was like that. He spoke almost not at all, but he had always the last word, and that last word was final. I used to watch Rav Davidat's meetings, both the Torah Masora, Shashiva leadership meetings, and in Dakotas Yisrael, and that's the Torah meetings. And most of the meetings of Rav David could be uttered single words, maybe a yes, maybe a no. I remember once in the 1990s, uh, Rav Palm took me to a Moetzes meeting, and Rav David was there, and he was quiet the entire time. It was a large table with really the G'dayli Yisrael, the Moetzes. As Rav Palm was leaving, uh, Rav David called him aside, I remember in the hallway, and gave him an idea, a way of dealing with the particular problem that was being discussed. And it struck me that that's the Rav David I had, had seen all the years. Very quiet, very unassuming, but nevertheless, pulling strings, making things happen in his own very quiet way. In many ways, Rav David Zatzal is the father of Artscroll. My father had this dream, but without a Rebbe like Rav David encouraging him and telling him, Rav you could do it, you could do it, go, it wouldn't happen. So every single art scroll safer that's out there that people are learning from, davening from, Kali Yisrael owes him a debt of gratitude. Rav David was the absolute perfect example of what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants from a human being on this earth. No one is too great to pick up a piece of paper from the floor or whatever else had to be done. No one is too great to say hello to his neighbor no matter who the neighbor is. Everything had to be straight. That's something we could apply to our lives. Not to talk about other people, right, when you don't have to. The highlight of every dinner was the grand finale, when the Rodeshiva stood up at the end and spoke a couple of minutes and gave a bracha to all the attendees at the dinner. At the last dinner, he spoke like a Zayda. He said, Tavshin Pei is coming up, and he mentioned many acronyms for Tavshin Pei. Pei Shnas Pulkan. Everybody should be redeemed from any problem that he has. Pei Shnas Pikuach Pikeach Ivrim. Pei Shnas Pruavu. Should be a year of children. Pei Shnas Palnosim. Everybody should be, have a happy year. And we should see each other healthy the following year. It just warm brachas that he gave to everybody. And then who knew that, uh, that Toshin Pei would be, uh, would be the year of his own uh, Shnas HaPetira. We had a Tzadik And he's not around anymore taken away from us. He tried as much as possible to live a very unpublic life, which he couldn't. He was a warm, caring father. He was a good husband. He was a caring person. So his own family, he certainly cared about. So it's We'll be fine today. Call it Our Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbi Yosef Raful Shlita, when he heard Rav David was Niftar, he said, Akshav Rav Moshe Niftar. Now Rav Moshe is gone. It was Avdi David. It was Moshe Avdi and Avdi David. Moshe Rabbeinu, Avram Melech. 
Moshe Feinstein, Rav David Feinstein. Rav David was the one who carried his father's legacy. Rav David was the one who carried on his father's Torah. Now it's gone. It's a new generation. It's a new era without Rav David. The uncle said that he's not his father. He really was his father. But he was his father in a new dial. The door that his father was in needed Shilas and Shuvas written. The door that the Rosh Hashivas and Tzal was in needed his interpersonal relationship to see his beautiful smile that he always had. That smile was a million dollars. I would do anything to get one more smile back from Rav David. The son here sent an ad into the yeshiva here for this, for this dinner, and the secretary told him, send it in, email it or fax it so we could, I don't want to miss a word. So he said, no, it's only one word, unbearable. To me, it's a huge void in my life. Rav David was someone who I knew, if I asked him a question, he got a straight answer, he didn't hesitate, and you could walk away feeling secure that if you follow what he said, everything's going to be okay. And I don't have that anymore. We're missing the Rosh Hashiva. Missing him very, very much. We miss him every day. It hasn't been so long since his passing, and I haven't been able to look at a picture of him really since. Sailors Chamuris have come, and you know, in on the Shulchan Ilapartam, as Chazal say, we, we, and I've, I've heard this from Rabbanim far more senior than I am. I don't know who to go to now to get guidance that would be acceptable to all parts of Kla Yisrael. We know that little place is like Lishka uh, Sagozas, we don't have it now. It's terrible. There's no one else like him. I don't think there will ever be anyone like him again. There are no words to describe his personality because he was a mimbifnasmai. A mimbifnasmai means that he was completely himself. He was a, a person that he understood everybody, he understood everybody what, what they want. And he was always willing to give, to add, whatever you need. It's very, very hard. But we have to take the lessons that he taught us, each of us, and just live those lessons in our life and feel that he's in Shemayim being a Melitz Yosha for all of us, knowing how much he loved us, what he instilled in us. And because of that, we know we're able to go on.